Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Heart Speaks. I spoke with an awesome author and curator, an all-around great person, Chloe Mouvuezo, who wrote an incredible book called Life, I Swear. This book is a collection and curation essays from Black women all over the diaspora. And they speak about their lives. They speak about their experiences with hardship and heartbreak and trauma, but also resiliency, self-actualization, individualization, all the things that bring us closer to ourselves and to others. In this episode, we talk about the art of relationship as a practice, as a skill set, as something that has to be developed so that we can enrich our lives and actually be stronger with ourselves and with one another. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you share it with your family and friends. I certainly will. And overall, I hope you enjoy. Have a wonderful, wonderful week, and I'll see you next time. Take care. Well, welcome, Chloe Luvuezo, to the Heart Speaks podcast. Pleasure to speak with you today. You, yeah, of course, you just recently published a book called Life, I Swear, and it's a beautiful collection and curation of stories of Black women from all over the diaspora. I read it over Thanksgiving weekend, or week rather, and I really enjoyed it, especially while I was home, back home in New Orleans. So I'd want to start out by just asking you what inspired you to create this book and to bring all these women together and inspire them to share their stories. Yeah. Thank you, Chloe, um, for having me. I love your work. So it's, it's a treat to be able to spend time with you and chat today. This book, I'm glad that you, you read it while you had time and were, while you were relaxed, because it feels very much like a pouring, least speaking on behalf of my own stories, just a pouring of my heart onto the pages. So when I thought about how people would consume it, I wanted them to take their time with it. I set out to do this book more. So really, I know I needed to use writing as a tool to process my own stories and some of my own experiences throughout my life that I think for some of them, I had thought resilience is just moving on. But I I wanted to really, in the spirit of taking, taking our time with things, I wanted to, I finally had a window where I had an opportunity to take my time in returning back to some of the stories that and experiences that I had kind of rushed my, what I thought was healing through just because I was able to pivot and to get back on my feet, but really take my time in understanding myself better currently by understanding kind of the dominoes effects of many of my past experiences and their consequences. It kind of all culminated in this moment in 2019, where it felt like if I didn't tackle both the heaviness of that particular year, but also of years prior that I wouldn't be really growing and expanding myself. And I wouldn't be able to get on the other side of this healing journey. Not that it's ever done, but I needed to go through it and not around it. I could feel a little lighter about my own stories. And then I just welcomed 
other women to do the same. I think it was important for me to be the first one to put my stories out there and just be able to allow them to trust me as I'm holding their own, their stories as well. But it just felt like we're at the time that was prior to, that was like 2019, early 2020, when I started to ask other women, it felt like we needed a safe space to pour our our truest, rawest, ugliest, most beautiful selves into without judgment or presumption. So that was the process really for myself and bringing this collection together. That's so interesting. I'm curious, there can be a difference between working through your own story privately, right? And even privately with others, but still privately and sharing it with the world. So I'm curious what gave you the confidence, quite frankly, to be that vulnerable, to be as vulnerable as you were in the book publicly. That's a really good question, because I think confidence was not the word of the hour as I was writing these stories. (laughs) (laughs) It was just honesty was and however honesty landed, whether it landed in like a space of vulnerability a space of being brave. I just knew that I needed to be honest in my storytelling. I hadn't thought that it would be published with a big five publisher. I thought that, and honestly, I was content with the idea of just publishing a couple copies. And, (laughs) and, um, you know, I definitely thought that self-publishing was going to be the route in small batches, but what gave me the confidence was I hired a book coach and the, the coaching wasn't to like coach me into putting this necessarily into the world as prevalently as it is now, but it was just hold me accountable to actually writing these stories. I had kind of written bits and pieces and stories I had outgrown and know I knew I needed to revisit. And so I wanted her to help me bring them all together, organize them, be thoughtful about them and just hold me accountable to finishing something that I set out to do. And what's interesting is that in our first call with her, she had actually experienced very similar things in her own life. And so I think immediately I trusted her in the middle of working with her. She was like, I want to be a literary agent and will you be my first client? And I was oh, like, wow. I, don't, I don't know anything about the publishing world. I hadn't even done research about the publishing world. I was just committed to writing it, printing it, whether that was with a paperclip and it being on my shelf or printing it in like a small batch. And she was like, no, we're going to let me be your champion because these stories deserve to be yours and all of the other women's deserve to be more accessible. So let's let's go for a bigger publisher. And when I first started the project, these serve the, the process of writing these stories that was in service of myself and the wounds that I had personally. But she really convinced me that they could actually be in collectively in service of other women as well. I trusted her because we had overlapping experiences, particularly around divorce and pregnancy loss. And so just her creating that safe space for me and making a case that other women could benefit from it too. I just, me also not knowing anything about the publishing process or world, I didn't even shop around. I was just, I let it be her baby as much as it was mine because she was there from the beginning. But it it definitely did take the coaching that I hired her to do 
ended up being a different kind of coaching sure, to, sure. to gain that confidence to put it out into the world. So obviously, you know, this book contains a lot of heartbreak and sorrow, but also I would say reflections on resilience and overcoming traumas and really deeply, deeply held wounds. And one of the things, and we'll get into some of the details a little bit later, but one of the things that I found fascinating about this, this book is that it's, it seemed to be that it's fundamentally about the art of relationship, which is something that we're not really taught how to do. There's no class that we go to on how to be in relationship and the, this idea of relatedness as a skill and as an act or as a practice rather. So I'm wondering, did you intend for this curation to be that or did it just sort of emerge? Because that, that seems to be a common theme. All of the different entries that I saw, these women are learning how to relate and practicing how to relate both to themselves and to the people in their world and the world around them. And again, that's something that we're not taught how to do. And it really is a practice and a skill that has to be developed over time. Mm, that is such a good synopsis. The art of relationship. I had to write that down. No, that was not by design, though I do believe that one thing that was by design was relationship with ourselves understanding ourselves, you know, pouring into ourselves, nurturing ourselves gently and tenderly, but honestly as well. I think relationship with ourselves, I think that I can pinpoint um, some of the other essayists as well. We learn our, we learn ourselves better and then learn how to take care of ourselves better through our relationships with others. They teach us kind of their mirrors to how are we expensing our energy? How are we reacting when our triggers are kind of provoked? And so I think that relationships with other people are almost classrooms Mm -hmm. for how we should have um, a deeper and better, healthier relationship with ourselves. But I think the vice versa applies as well. When we are um, still, when we are in this self-reflective, self-examining, really embedded in that, we're able to learn ourselves, our needs, our desires, our what we really long for from connection. And then we can build relationships accordingly. I think both of them play into relationships with ourselves and, and others. One informs the other and vice versa. But I hadn't thought about it like that. But I do think in our life experiences, there's so much to discover and explore on our own in solitude, but we really learn where our triggers are and how we light up when we're around other people as well. So of course, other people are characters in our our life stories. It's so funny because, you know, I was at home when I was reading this book. And I was with my parents and I began to notice certain triggers I have with my mom. My mother and I don't have, we don't share the same, let's say, political views. And anytime I would go back home, I would notice, well, actually, I didn't notice. This was the issue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I would be triggered. My ego would be triggered by her lack of agreement with me. And I've been doing some self-study. But I think reading your book was also part of this. I learned last time I went home that what I was seeking was validation from my mother. 
And I was defining validation as agreeing with me on (laughs) X, Y, and Z. I was confusing the practice and the act of relationship and relating and relatedness with trying to control the outcome and trying to essentially possess my mom almost and like control her and like make her who I hoped she could be instead of who she is. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> so I'm wondering like if that resonates with you, how that resonates with you, you know, what what thoughts come up for you when you hear that? Oh my gosh. I completely understand. I I completely relate to that as it relates to um my mother as well. You know, and I and I didn't grow up with my mother um very much. I was with her until I was about 10 and then lived with other a lot of other families, several other families. We've always had since then a long distance relationship. And then now as in adulthood, we live five minutes away where before we lived continents and oceans away or hours away. And so now it's, I relate to that because now it's our opportunity to, to build intimacy and in a way that we hadn't before when we were a phone call away and not a drive away. But I find myself wanting to use it and I think I'm growing out of this, maturing out of this, but I want her to mother me now. I wanted her yeah. to mother me. And she just returned. Um, she just returned from West Africa in 2014. So it's actually been, well, six, seven years now. The earlier part of these last six, seven years, I've wanted her to mother me be, to catch up for, you know, what we missed. And then I had to remind myself, I'm an adult. She's an adult. And she has autonomy to be her own individual. I think, you know, as it relates to that triggering that you were describing, it's, and this shows up in other kinds of relationships as well. It's, I want you to answer the way I know will bring me ease, even if that means compromising the truth of how you really feel or your perspective. And that's so self-serving. And so we, we kind of have to zoom out a little bit and just recognize the autonomy each of us, each of us have. I was reading, I mentioned before we got started, I was reading a little bit about your story and, (laughs) and how one of your kind of epiphanies was you realizing, I think it was one of your mentors, professors saying, you know, we're missing the point if we think that the objective of these conversations, two people with opposite perspectives coming together need to agree. You know, it's really about the understanding. And to me, it's, and I I think of that in terms of the book as well. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the contributors calls it storytelling, an archive of understanding Mm -hmm. and really being able to like cement who we are through how we understand each other. But Knowing that the, that's to me, the bottom line, the bottom line is not in convincing or converting you to my ways. It's let me understand you so that, and you understand me and hopefully we shift our perspectives. But if there's any enlightenment that comes out of it, it doesn't necessarily have to be limited to being agreeable. The enlightenment could come out of realizing how different we are. And that being a mirror to me and then me thinking about my own ways or my own insights differently or feeling more confident, but not letting ego drive that confidence, letting wisdom drive it. That's hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Um, because ego is its own person at the party. (laughs) 
For sure. And it's also hard, I think, with close relationships, whether it's a parent, whether it's a romantic partner. I want to talk about something you bring up in the section entitled Unhealed Wounds, where you talk about this guy that you dated named Guy, and you talk about how he exploited your insecurities. I love this line that you have. You say, not everyone in our lives is on divine assignment. Some people come to slay your spirit. And I have mm-hmm. to say that when I read that, I was like, whew, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it took me back a bit. So my question for you is, I guess, what advice can you give, especially to young women who may not be, who may be oblivious to the signs, who may, may not be able to tell what those signs are when they're entering into a a relationship or a situationship where their partner is essentially feeding off of, you know, in a sort of parasitic way, as opposed to relationship and in that relational giving and receiving, giving and receiving kind of way. That was one of the um, the essays that I, I really needed to take my time with because mm-hmm. I think sometimes we experience Tough, tough parts of our journey like this one and that this relationship and we outgrow them to the point or we move on like I was talking about earlier we move on so fast and you're like I'm not affected who's affected I'm not affected not me (laughs) it would be weak to be affected right it would be a sign of weakness right right yeah and so in that sense skipping over the actual processing and healing of it and now that feels several lives ago. I've disassociated from the girl, you know, I was between, how old was I? Between 22 and 27 in that relationship. Mm-hmm. It feels so long ago. And the work it took to actually like, okay, put myself back in your old shoes and <laughs> yeah. walk yourself through the process of what flags did you see that you ignored? Mm-hmm. What didn't you see because of your naivete or your your desire to feel loved and to feel a home in someone else. What were you chasing? What were you resisting? All of those questions, I think, deserve to be top of mind, not just in retrospect, but in the moment. It's obviously hard to do as a young girl. You only know what you know, and you're impressionable, and you want so bad to feel loved. And you've almost written your love story before you've walked it. And so... (laughs) That's an issue I find in myself, yeah. Yes. And so I think, you know, the biggest question I'd probably ask my then self and then now um, other younger women is, what are you holding back? Because I find that usually when we're in relationship, romantic or otherwise, with overly dominant characters, there is something that's top of mind that we're not saying or or top of heart that we're not saying, we're, we're holding it back. Either because we don't want to ruffle feathers, yeah. we don't want to put the truth out there because then we might have to actually deal with it. Yeah. We actually, if it, if it then becomes a reality that yeah. we can't undo or unsee or un, unknow. And so I think if we're being really honest with ourselves in the moment, in relationships that aren't aligned or on divine assignment, we have to be honest about what is at the tip of our tongue or what is top of mind that we're not actually letting out on the table. I would guess that either it's a hesitancy or a fear or something that is minimizing your voice, not just what aren't you saying, but why aren't you saying it? And that is 
an indicator that it's not truly a safe space where you can sink into, where you can be your authentic self. And how could you live at your highest vibration if you're you're not provided the environment um, within relationships to be all that you are and all that is um, and share all that that is on your heart or on your mind. And so I think in dynamics like the one I described in this essay, Unhealed Wounds, I would argue that most of us women who enter into them have something that we're holding back in saying or expressing and asking yourselves, what is that thing? Because sometimes we don't always know. We just know it's it's an itch that we're like, and then why? Why are you holding it back? It's interesting. I find that there's this relationship between wanting to belong to a relationship or or group um, or collective of some sort and wanting to express yourself, your individuality. And there's always this tension between those two things. But I do wonder within the context of a romantic relationship, and I've certainly had this experience, and I wonder if this is more pronounced with women, is because we are such relational beings and because we thrive off of this feeling of of relatedness, we can sometimes compromise on our own individuality. And we can be so afraid of being alone, right, that we will compromise and put up with a number of things just so we can stay in, I won't call it a relationship because I, I think that word has weight and has to mean something specific, but just so that we can be tethered to someone else. Mm-hmm. And I was reading this book called The Way of Woman, which is a beautiful book. I highly recommend it. Um, the Way of Woman by Helen Luke. And she talks about how she talks about the role of sacrifice in becoming your true self. And you, you have to always sacrifice the thing that means the most to you. And she talks about one of the challenges and the quests, so to speak, that women must encounter is their willingness to sacrifice being with someone else, their willingness to be alone, right? In order to actually operate on that higher frequency and in operating on that higher frequency, inadvertently or counterintuitive, be able to actually attract someone who's also on that frequency, right? But the willingness to be alone and the willingness to give up being with someone if that person is not the, the appropriate person. It's something that's really, it has to be learned. It's like a conclusion one has to arrive at. But it's also very difficult, difficult to arrive at that, to arrive at that realization. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think I've experienced both. That It's kind of an arc, I think, of um, when I think about even my romantic life. And for sure, I think the theme of my younger part of my life, certainly, you know, after leaving Niger, West Africa, where I spent most of my formative years between, I came back to the States at at 14 years old. And between then and literally mother, when I became a mother, motherhood, I felt like I was in that, that stage of wanting like deep desire and fulfilling or deep desire for belonging and Mm -hmm. filling it with relationships. Some Mm -hmm. that were meaningful, some that were not. But that that void was filled and that desire for belonging definitely led me into relationships that are are no longer existing. (laughs) Um, But and then it was really in there was a, a good few years where I sunk into that singledom, which was 
like the most thriving I have been spiritually, mentally, emotionally, the season where this book was birthed out of. And so I, I definitely think that to get to that place, though, where I welcome solitude and all of it, the ways in which it, it contributes to my wholesomeness, I think to get to that point, I needed, and I think that this is also just whether it's teenage years or, or, or young adulthood, we kind of have to learn the hard way. You know, we could, we could tell um, young women all about the importance of, of being in solitude, but I think it takes being tired and being worn down sometimes, being exhausted by a track record of cycles that really sometimes aren't as progressive aggressive as we can be when we're alone. And so however long that takes you, I think that once you get to that place of really appreciating the solitude, you're able to create the like rich soil that you need to then plant new things, new relationships based um, not on trauma informed kind of past, but on possibility and light. And you're in a place where the two of you can almost educate each other along the way versus a codependent depleted um, state, which is why I titled that one essay, Unhealed Wounds. It's when two people who are wounded come together and trying to look to each other to heal their wounds when really the moral of that story, <laughs> the moral of that story was to really invest in our own healing of our own wounds before we create codependent based relationships. Yeah, that seems to me connected to your point about this impulse that we sometimes have to fix people. Mm, yes. And uh, this is something Ooh. that I'm... <laughs> I, I, I hear you. Um, I hear you taking a, a deep sigh. <laughs> this is something that I um, have to work on for sure. Um, it, it, it has become, um, you know, while it started off, I think, as instinctual to that fixer stage. And I think a lot of women just as nurturers and caretakers, we lean into that, particularly before we have children, but it's a loving act to tell someone, no, you, you take care of you. And then we can come back together if it's meant for that, but it is loving, tough love, but necessary loving act when you allow someone to learn their lessons on their own and knowing that we can love them afar. You wrote that um, our worth is not dependent upon our capacity to fix people, but it's simply like as we are. That really landed for me and that was really profound. And I'm learning that. I'm learning how to do that right now in my relationships, how to be with someone who is experiencing hardship and not try to like, oh, let me give you the solution to this, but just be with them in that hardship and listen to them and and just be as opposed to trying to fix and, you know, kind of play whack-a-mole almost. For sure. (laughs) And uh, it's a very fascinating self-discovery, especially in our society where I think we're condition to productivity and all these things are, that are part of like the fixer, fixer mindset. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we can't afford to be martyrs for everything and everyone, mm. particularly if we are <laughs> so willing to compromise ourselves along the way, mm. what do we have left? Mm. You know? So, so sometimes, yeah. And so sometimes it's not a matter of fixing, but just holding space and then even leading by example and bringing people along with you on the way, should they choose to 
to follow, but we cannot be martyrs for, for everyone's heartbreak um, and pain. Yeah. Also a thing I'm working on. Um, <laughs> do you have a favorite essay from the book? Well, of my own or of other either, either one. Yeah. Oh gosh. It's, it's so hard. I think my favorite essay to write for myself was definitely hues of exposure. And okay. I feel like there's also just so much packed in there that with the word count, I couldn't get it all out, but I, I think I could make a, a whole book out of hues of exposure. Um, and that's really about my own upbringing and having so many experiences where I was exposed to so many different communities and cultures and ways of life and perspectives. I got to see how race and privilege and access and citizenship and geography, color, all have different kind of, they show up differently in different contexts. And so that is, can definitely be fleshed out, but it was really um, to really take myself back to the, the senses, the, the sights, the sounds, the things I remembered from growing up in sub-Saharan Western West Africa, but I, I definitely didn't put it all on the table. There's more. So that was, that was fun. I really enjoyed that because it felt like an homage homage to my beginnings, even in lieu of not having considered that home to this day in search of home. My favorite, gosh, there's so many and they're all great. And I say that because I know the women behind them and not all of them I knew before embarking on this book project, but I grew to learn and love them each through this project. I think one that really stands out for me is the one by Gabrielle Williams, The Love Word Journey. And she is born and raised in Maryland when she's Spelman. And she up and moved to Brazil, to Bahia after college. And so she experiences also race and privilege in different ways. And I think for me, I'm biracial. And so I think that it was also beautiful to see how another woman, a Black American woman, also experienced some of the same intricacies of that global life in a different way. But she talks about in her essay, really Bahia being just this eye opener in how Blackness shows up outside of the U.S. And that really led to her her journey as a spiritual healer, um, which she is now. Um, she does down healing for me and my son sometimes. And she's awesome. And then just what it was like coming back to the U.S. as a single mother and being coming from a middle class, well to do family, educated, but standing in line for a government check and what that did again to ego. And I think there's just so much packed into that. While we may, may not resonate with the specific experience, we resonate with that like, what if, and this kind of were kind of the questions that came up when Wakanda came out, Black Panther came out. It's like, what does Blacklist live, look like outside of these structures? I think that's a question we've all asked ourselves. How does ego play into stages of our lives that we may not feel incredibly proud of, but there's mm. pride in where we do stand. And so I think that, that that story just hit home for me in different ways. 
And do you think having such a global experience gives you kind of an insider-outsider relationship with the world, number one? And number two, do you think, if so, does being an insider-outsider give you insight into different spheres of life that someone who may not have had that same experience has? Because my experience, my experience has been I am an insider-outsider of different cultures from a religious perspective, from a spiritual perspective. And so I can see things within cultures and I can see what's sometimes not being seen from within those cultures, uh, from within those spiritual cultures. So I'm wondering if you find that you get insight or aha moment that is the product of your lived experience, of such a globally lived experience. Absolutely. I think that insider outsider, I love the way you frame that because it has felt like I've had peak, not just a peak, but a seat, different tables, but also felt like a guest at those tables, you know, and and that's quite literally um, it's figurative, but it's also literally, you know, having lived within multiple families, they were from Canada, from Liberia, a black American family, a native American family. Even within my own family, you know, on my mother's side, they're white. I was the only person of color in their family. On my father's side, Congolese. And I'm the only one who's mixed American and has the access of American, that American citizenship grants. And so just literally living with these families And that's my insider and and understanding how they're forming their perspectives on the world and and what what they do, what they don't do um, and why. But then also feeling very much like an outlier, even between my own families. I think, you know, each of them provide reference points for me. And I I would say a bit. Yeah, they they provide reference points. And I, I say that not to avoid saying comparison. Because, um, because I understand why communities and cultures are so insular as a way to preserve or protect. And in that sense, feeling like a guest, I can also respect that, you know, where earlier in my years, it felt like a dab, a red line drawn down the sand. You stand over here where we are over here. Now, I think in my adulthood, it's a study. It's a study. It's Mm, a, I studied cultural anthropology in in college um, and journalism. And I think just putting my kind of investigative journalism, cultural anthropologist hat on, I've grown even in the role of feeling very much like an outsider, an outlier, I've grown such deep respect for the insularity of communities. And that also translates a bit to religion as well. I grew up in Niger, which was predominantly Muslim country. My father's side is Catholic, also believe in voodoo and and things like that and medicine doctors. And then have been, while in the States, while I am not of a religion, when I do, I do deeply appreciate Baptist um, Christianity. And so it's been interesting having reference points to either gut check, fact check, (laughs) intuition check, um, one against the other. So it's interesting, as you were saying, as you're talking about coming, being able to respect the insularity of communities, I think that's a very mature, a mature perspective that a lot of people can't understand just because Mm -hmm. They don't have the same experiences. And I, it strikes me that that was one of the central questions in Black Panther, right? I mean, mm-hmm. whether or not we should remain insular 
we being Wakanda, uh, to clarify, mm-hmm. <laughs> but whether or not we should remain insular or go out into the world and share our knowledge and share yeah. our resources with the world, understanding that both of these have pros and cons, benefits and, you know, quandaries. And that will continue to be the case. You know, there. I think from a psychological perspective, when it comes to relating to ourselves, relate, relating to the various communities that we navigate, there is no resting place in the sense that there is no, there is no place that we come to where it, it's like everything is resolved, right? Where, where, one of the things I'm learning is that I don't even want to necessarily come to a, a place of absolute resolution. Right. Right. Because what would that mean? You know, there would be nothing else to do. There would be nothing <laughs> So it's almost as if it's like a dance. Yeah. Right. And the objective is to keep the dance going along, even even in those moments where there's tension or there's pain or, or there's something that you're learning about yourself that you didn't know was there, that you have to continue the process. Absolutely. And I think about it as just being constant discoverers, explorers, question askers. I love the dance. It's really allowing one insight to lead you to another Mm. and then the constant peeling back. So Alexandra says something in her essay that's related to to this sort of riff. She talks about curiosity. She says, I tap into my spirituality, which is channeled by curiosity. But the thing is, people are deathly afraid of the unknown. Yes. And you can't have an orientation that's rooted in curiosity unless you're willing to to dance with the unknown as opposed to being afraid of the unknown. So I'm like, do you have any advice or any tips on getting in right relationship with the unknown? Yeah, I think the unknown actually speaks so much to this like life, I swear, and and how I came up with the title. Yeah, please share with us. Yeah, the, the, um, you know, the unknown was such a theme and I, I think I speak on behalf of all mid 20 somethings, <laughs> every single one, you know, the unknown was the theme of life in that time. Right. And it's, I don't, I've gotten, maybe I've gotten this degree, but maybe I've, I've had a certain level of experience. I don't know how I'm going to apply it. I don't know my value yet to be yeah. able to claim space confidently without feeling like imposter syndrome. Mm, imposter um, syndrome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can be a planner, but as you enter, get closer to your thirties, realize like you can't really plan everything and you'd be almost limiting yourselves if you could. And just the unknown ambiguity and like that like life, I swear, like what, <laughs> what do you have for me? What have you done to me? Where are we going with this thing called life? It's kind of that sigh, like our moment of reflection where we're like life, man, I swear. And sometimes we're in awe of, of the things that we done or been through. And sometimes we're in awe of the unknown. Like, and I love the word awe. It's just this wonder. It's just, ambiguity can be a beautiful thing, but it can only be a beautiful thing if we're not going head to head to it with ego. Right. Mm, mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I do think, you know, as it relates to spirituality, which that part of Alex L's essay is about and spirituality kind of being very intertwined with curiosity and discovery and letting that 
lead you. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about. The objective is to just understand. And we understand by asking questions, by allowing ourselves to to dance from one side of the room to the other. If we are so linear in how we think about either life or spirituality or religion or relationships, how to navigate them, there is no blueprint, I I believe, for any of those things. But if we pursue them in a very linear path, we don't get to discover more of ourselves. And that's the casualty of not being curious. Beautiful. Beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I have two more questions for you. First question is, well, I just want to draw that last point that you just made to something that you write at the very end of the book, which is, it is never too late to form new images of ourselves. And my spirituality has been informed lately by Taoism. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea within Taoism, there is no image, essentially. There is no one thing that can contain the image of God. But there is no one thing. Taoists often talk about the no, th- the no thingness of God, as opposed to the nothingness of God, the no thingness. Yes, right? I love that. And, and when I think about that on an individual level and think about the no thingness of human beings, right? There is no singular one thing that captures who we are, our essence. And that idea really gives me a sense of relief, actually, in times where I'm dealing with a sticky situation or a painful situation or a sorrowful situation. All of these different feelings are simply just aspects of the no thingness of what it means to be human, right? And I find that very clarifying and I find that I find a similar a similar sound almost in that last quote that you put in the book. I love that. Yeah. How does that resonate with you? Well, one, I'm gonna be looking into Taoism when I'm when (laughs) on Google when this is over. But that resonates with me. And I think that it also speaks to interesting enough that you said it speaks to the the ending of the book, but even the beginning. And that first part of the book is some S-U-M of our parts, Ah. meaning I am not one thing. I am the sum of everything that I am. I am my memories. I am my parents' stories. None of these are things, you know, because I think that when we say, where are you from or where's home to you? It's about the home you grew up in, the street, the very tangible place in terms of like pin dropping in geography. It helps us get a sense of, okay, you're from, you know, east side of wherever city. Yeah, (laughs) I understand you. I can pin you to that one thing. I get who you are. It makes me easier, makes it easier for me to digest my assumption about you. But I am from many places. I'm from many families. I'm from all of the friends that raised me. I'm from my memories. I'm from my heartbreaks, my breakthroughs, the the ironies that have happened in my life, the coincidences and the consequences of things that I've done, whether good or bad. There's not one thing that defines me. And in that, and also in the spirit of it's never too late to reimagine new versions of ourselves, you know, we're fluid. And I, I think of identity in a very holistic way. Yes, it is race, but it is also how you see yourself. And that can change experience to experience. And I really appreciate the no thingness because that is, I think, language that I think I needed when I was younger, when I was trying to fit square that I am into the circles of the world. And yeah, that deeply resonates with me. Beautiful. 
So my last question for you is, do you have any practices? Do you journal? I've been recording my dreams lately. So I'm wondering if you have any practices that you can share with us to help us in this, you know, self-actualization challenge that we're embarking upon. Mm -hmm. All of us together. I love that you record your dreams. I've been doing that too. And I've also been trying to actually realize some of my dreams and they don't make sense to anyone else who <laughs> didn't have them. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Um, right. But yes, I journal. I do. I do try and journal. Mornings are are kind of when my my brain is fresh and clear. So I do try and journal. But I also think that as a writer, I've had this conversation with some other writers who have felt bad for not writing, 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 writing. And I have to remind us that part of the writing experience is also living, you know, it's also having the the engagements, the interactions, whether it's with other people or whether it's with nature where we're like tapped into our senses, the smells, the sights, the sounds, all of that is almost like Intel that informs our writing, whether what we actually put on paper or whether it informs our expressiveness because we are so in touch with the sensitivities of our exchanges. And so I do try and get outside as a writing exercise. Like that is part of my writing exercise is to get into the nature. I think for me, reading while I wrote a book, reading has become a luxury that I don't always have with a five-year-old like jumping on my face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I love to do I love to do Bikram yoga. That is Ooh, like okay. <laughs> it, it's really intense. It's yeah. like a hundred degrees. You're sweating. You can't think about anything. It, it is it forces you into meditation. Whereas m- meditating without that intensity of it's easy for me to get distracted. And so I I enjoy things that are like all immersive in that way. Yeah, I've, I stopped for a while during the pandemic, you know, hot breathing in closed spaces <laughs> wasn't a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they say that you need to do it to really make it like health wise beneficial about three times a week. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for yeah. having this conversation with me. I really, really love the, the conversation and I love the book. Is there, any, is there any last thing you'd like to share with our audience that you want them to know about? Um, I would love them to to support independent bookstores. That's awesome. my biggest takeaway. <laughs> Those are the champions of of voices, and particularly black owned bookstores, champions of black authors. So mm. I'd um, encourage everyone to shop there um, before anywhere else. Awesome, beautiful. Well, thank you, Chloe. Um, I will certainly let you know, or my producer will let you know when this is out. Yes. Thank uh, you, Chloe. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. This was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Have a great rest of your week. Stay in touch. Okay. Bye. Bye.